Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Pardons Board is called back to order. Next item on the agenda is Phyllis Miller, inmate number 44543. You ready to proceed? Yes, we are, Your Honor. Uh, Governor Brian Sandoval, uh, uh, Catherine uh, Cortez Masto, Attorney General, Mr. Chief Justice Douglas, other distinguished associate justices, it is my privilege to speak on behalf of Phyllis Miller in her application for relief. She's requesting that her commutation of sentence from two life without possibility of paroles running consecutive be run concurrent and that she be given eligibility for parole consideration. Her application is made pursuant to uh, Article 5, Section 14, which sets forth the criteria for you to consider in granting uh, sovereign uh, leniency and mercy. And the criteria talks about strides in self-development. Phyllis Miller has made of virtually every program, every academic course that she could in the years that she's been confined. She has accumulated uh, numerous credits towards a college degree. She has taken advantage of self-improvement classes and courses to gain insight into her circumstance. Her um, commitment to self-improvement has been made in the face of really a, a bleak prospect for any future effort. My, uh, my, my, my uh, memorandum in support of her petition outlines a very tragic history that she has suffered since childhood. Neglect, starvation, physical abuse, sexual abuse, a mother who was aware of it all and did nothing to help her told her she wouldn't be believed, wouldn't be helped. That set her up into a course into the future of getting into abusive relationships, which all of the men that she had selected uh, were abusive men. In fact, uh, the uh, the progression was one where um, it basically she tried to she escaped from two marriages and and then went into a relationship with Mr. Miller, who like many abusive men come off and and start out the relationship charming, interested, caring, and she fell for him. She believed that she mistook his his uh, controlling behaviors, his really interest in her well-being, the fact that he would be stalking her and coming to her workplace, that he was asking her to account for every moment of the day. She found out in the same relationship that he had abnormal sexual needs. He fantasized rape. He had an arsenal of weapons. He used this arsenal of weapons to point at her and threaten her life. 
this became intolerable. Uh, and finally, her son, by her second relationship, returned from honorable service to this country and came to live with her. He too began uh, suffering the uh, abuse of Mr. Miller, which became extreme, belittling and um, tormenting. He had the torment of seeing his mother uh, threatened and abused. Seeking to distance herself from this dangerous and toxic relationship, she sought a divorce and got her own housing. The counsel for her husband and her own counsel said, no, you, you're, this is a family that can't afford two households. Best if you go back. The deal was struck with Mr. Miller and Mr. Miller's counsel that all his weapons would be completely taken out of the residence. Did that happen? For a brief time. But Mr. Miller's counsel himself returned the arsenal of guns to Mr. Miller and it was back to life as if she had never tried to divorce. Ironically, the return of the gun placed Mr. Brake, my client's son, Brian, in a position where he could uh, use it against Mr. Miller and he did. My client was convicted basically of aiding and abetting. She was not the theory of prosecution, was not that she was the shooter, not that she was the one that perpetrated the lethal force. She was convicted after jury trial at her penalty phase, no mitigating evidence of her uh, abuse at the hands of the decedent was presented by her counsel. This gross failure of the attorney resulted in a, in a jury recommending that she receive two consecutive life sentences without possibility of parole. The tragic situation uh, has now uh, been absolutely highlighted, I suppose, by the fact that Brian Brake her son is parole eligible as we are here in this court. That is another consideration that we will talk about. I want you to understand that as you stand, as my client stands before you, she is not a well person. She was clinically dead as a result of her chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, but for extraordinary medical procedures, she would not be before you today. Uh, medical science and I, maybe the grace of God gave her a second chance. She's got a degenerative arthritic condition. She also suffers a severe uh, coronary uh, condition. She uh, needs lots of medical attention. She could best be served if at some point in the future she could be released where she could get the kind of health care that would be available to her. Um, 
Further uh, incarceration would constitute a gross unfairness. This is uh, one of the criteria, of course, under Article 5, Section 14. And um, what would be the basis of the inequities involved would be the severity of the sentence in relation to the defendant. Well, the shooter, in this case, has life with possibility of parole. My client does not. Um, her role was far less proactive or active, even by the prosecutor's theory. The extent of her participation uh, is far less minor than the person who has more mercy than she. And then you have to consider, because it's right there within the criteria for the granting of executive clemency, the history of abuse suffered by applicant at the hands of the victim. There it is. Every, her victimization at the hands of Mr. Miller was extreme. He threatened her life, he put a gun to her head, he told her if she left him, she was dead. She tried to divorce him, she tried to, to end this relationship uh, with legal process and had a failure in the legal system and, her, and the agreement that was struck between her counsel and Mr. Miller's counsel. My client has done tremendous strides in trying to make herself better aware of domestic violence issues. She wishes, were she released, to be given the opportunity to share her life experience with other abused women and to help them understand how they can break the circle and cycle of violence and how to recognize abusive relationships. She certainly um, is someone who was equipped almost from birth with an inability to recognize danger signs. I, uh, I've outlined for uh, the board, I think, her salient history. It's also, it's also outlined in the psychological evaluation, although it's not in very much detail. Um, we are requesting that uh, the, the board grant her the same mercy that exists for her son, far more involved individual in this sad and tragic event. Um, I'm sure the board notes that the Department of Corrections has supported her application and uh, they are well aware of the strides she's made. They are well aware of her history within the prison system. And uh, I'm asking this report to correct the inequities that exist in this case, that you are in the position to temper mercy here, to temper justice with mercy and, and afford her the requested relief making her life sentences concurrent and granting her uh, the possibility of 
eligibility for parole. And at this point, I will conclude. I want to say that I know that my client, Phyllis Miller, has a statement she wants to present to this board. Thank you, Council. Before we hear from you, Ms. Miller, I, I do have a question for, for Council. Uh, you, you're critical of trial counsel with regard to argument at sentencing. And I also note from the statement that's been presented that, that Ms. Miller did have appeals and exhausted all of her appellate remedies. Is that accurate? That is true. She exhausted all of her appellate remedies and she exhausted post-conviction relief. You, this board, your board, is, is, is the, the last chance for her to receive any mercy or justice considering what subsequently occurred is that her son received life with possibility of parole. No, and I understand that part of it. My, my question is this, is were the arguments that you state today incorporated into the appellate arguments that were presented to the Supreme Court? Well, I am sure that she had, uh, she, she, had, she tells me she doesn't believe that those same arguments were presented in terms of effectiveness of counsel, and I can't speak as to why that is so. I can just say that uh, obviously everyone on the pardons board has been an attorney, is an attorney, is a, has been a judge or, or might become a judge, and you know that a, a, in, a, in a death case, the penalty phase may be the most important phase. And the advice that her counsel gave her was, don't speak ill of the dead. And so it came that nothing was discussed about what she had endured. And I believe it is that failure that probably caused the sentence that we see imposed upon her, tragically. And another question is, her programming is admirable, but there's also a very extensive disciplinary record it during her true. incarceration. Do you have any comment with regard to that record? I would, I, would, I would just say first on behalf of Phyllis that it is often difficult uh, to adjust to a situation where one's life is behind bars and totally structured. It, I think that most of what you see here is it centers around the early time that she was at the facilities. Her adjustment has become excellent. You, it is, it is difficult to, to imagine the hopelessness that one might feel in a position where they knew that the sentence that they had received would not even have a glimmer of hope that they would see the street in their lifetime. And that probably doesn't enhance adjustment to confinement. But ultimately, she's accepted and, 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 and realized that her confinement is her reality, and she's decided to make the most of it. And yes, there is a history of, of staying on the phone long and other, other things. But they'll all tend to, to be early in her confinement. And before I move on to Ms. Miller, I wanted Justice Douglas. Counsel, I've heard you, but there's another issue that I'd like to bring up and I'd like to hear some comment. There's an issue about a foil prison escape and a plan to kill a guard while in prison. Would you comment about that? Because that gives me great pause. 
Well, I, all I know about the situation was that, uh, that apparently some of the women or girls there at the facility wanted to come up with some harebrained scheme to escape. And this, uh, this, is, uh, this was apparently something that happened. And I think my client's better able to explain to, to you in terms of the background of it than I. <clears throat> Six weeks after I arrived in prison, I, we spent like 30 days in intake at that time. Uh, six weeks after I arrived in prison, uh, my, in, my roommate had requested me off intake. Um, she was a lifer. Um, she had been there for like 13, 14 years. The abuse I'd suffered all my life took on a different form. All of a sudden it was manipulation, threats, you do what you want, we're on one side, the guards are on the other, you do this, you do that. I don't want to try and put the blame on somebody else because I'm here to accept responsibility for what my part in anything. Uh, but I have to be honest about the fact that I was scared to death. I knew absolutely nothing about prison except what I'd seen in movies where it was rape and you get beat up. In fact, all this situation that happened was I went to the hole and they gave me four years, I mean, ten months. When you're in the hole, you go for evaluations every three months. I literally thank them for putting me in the hole because I could adapt and I could learn. And above all, I was safe. I was safe from threats. They would stand outside my cell and scream at me. If I came out, they were going to beat me up. They were going to cut me. All kinds of threats. So I opted to stay in my cell. Then I didn't have to face that. And I did that for two years and ten months. But I had no part in no escape. There was talk of it, yes. I think also that needs to be pointed out there was no prosecution. And obviously, if they had a prosecutable case, normally an escape would have been picked up by a, a district attorney's office. Roski, R O S K E. Council, I don't believe everything that's printed in the newspaper, but it uh, alleges that Miss Miller and a boyfriend did plan something, and I do have grave concerns, and that was shortly after she was incarcerated. So I just state that for the record. Thank you, Justice Chief Justice Douglas. Other questions from board members for council? Does Ms. Miller wish to make a statement, Mr. Rossi? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, first, I'd like to thank you for the privilege of even being here, because I never thought this would ever happen. Oh, I'm sorry. First, I would like to thank you for the privilege of being seen. Um, as my attorney has mentioned, in 2008, I was taken to the hospital for respiratory failure. I was on a ventilator for three weeks. Uh, during that time, on a ventilator, 
when your lungs need oxygen, it draws from your extremities. So all of a sudden when I wake up, I can't walk, I can't write, I had a hard time remembering. Um, it just drained everything because my lungs needed the oxygen. This was the way it was explained to me. The chaplain from the prison came up. She went back and told everybody that, that it was done. I was never going to make it. I wouldn't be back. Uh, they notified my son that your mother's going to die. For uh, the grace of God, he gave me a second chance. And that's what I would like to ask you guys for. A second chance to show what kind of person I am. I would love to be able to help somebody else because every time you watch TV or hear the news or read the newspaper, it's all about abuse. It's all about somebody getting killed. And I can guarantee you that any murder that has ever occurred, there's been abuse in that relationship at some, to some extent. Once I got out of the hole, I kind of felt like I was a little bit more on steady ground. I began to take classes, I took college, I took so many groups that I was, began to repeat them. And they would say, you know, you can't, you're not supposed to repeat these. But every class I took, I learned. It's so easy to say, well, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you leave? Well, the threat of staying is horrible, but the threat of leaving is also horrible. When somebody beats you down mentally, let alone physically, mentally, to where they make you think you can absolutely not survive without them, it's pretty, it's pretty mind-boggling. Uh, like my attorney mentioned, I had filed for divorce, moved out. <coughs> I had put everything I had into remodeling our home and making it as nice as possible. He was to sell the home and reimburse me so that I had my own money so I could buy my own house again. He said he couldn't afford to give me the money because he just couldn't afford it. So the deal was struck between the two attorneys that I was to move back home. He promised he wouldn't bother me. And I kept saying, it's not going to work. I know it's not going to work. And they said, well, this is the only alternative. And he agrees. I would agree only if all the weapons were removed from the house. His attorney agreed to keep the weapons. The day, the very day, I moved back in. I hear him out in the garage and he's got all his guns. I knew, I knew then it was not going to be a workable thing. That night, when I went to sleep in the spare room, He decided that he would rape me because I wasn't going to live in his house and not have sex with him. Uh, 
I could go on and on and on and make all kinds of excuses. But I don't want to make excuses. I want to accept the responsibility. I am so sorry that there was a death out of this. I wish there would have been other ways. I wish I would have been a strong enough person to have seen another way out. I wish I could have known the avenues to travel to have ever, before it ever got so far, but I didn't. I didn't. I feel like when um, I recovered from my um, hospital stay, I feel like God gave me a second chance at life, and that is really what I would like to ask for you, from you today. Wanted to speak on behalf of Miss Miller's application. She has uh, no living siblings, I believe, and uh, her only son is confined in Nevada State Prison. It's fine break, so we have no one, I believe, that would speak on her behalf. Thank you. You may be seated. Yeah. Mr. Helzer, on behalf of the Washington County District Attorney's Office. <clears throat> Governor Sandoval, uh, Attorney General uh, Catherine Masto, uh, Chief uh, Justice Douglas, members of the court. Uh, there are other cases here that concern Washoe County, but this is the primary reason why I appeared here today is this case. And I understand the consideration being given the other cases. I'm not trying to be critical. But this request should be denied. She stands here convicted of aiding and abetting murder in the first degree with the use of a deadly weapon. Possibility of parole by the jury, and they ran consecutive pursuant to statute that was in place at the time. This is not a case that, re that really merits a reduction. Some of, of counsel's comments uh, are a little out of sequence, so to speak, but I wanted to address them up front. And I, I just note that we have a son who returns from the service. I would ask that you look at that son as something that very few people have that come into their relationship, which is a means by which to go. Go with your son. Ultimately, she did. Let's get out of here. Files for divorce, they get out, and the attorneys talk her into going back. Now, apparently, it is so horrific, yet that discussion does not occur between her and her counsel because no attorney, having heard that, would ever say go back there. But she goes back. And I'm not saying that there may not have been a reason. There may have been financial uh, leverages in that divorce. I don't know. But she had her son, and her and her son go back. Ultimately, the guns that were returned, by the way, I believe one in particular was used to kill Mr. Miller. Now, 
I would also point out that there are many, many things that have taken place while she's been in prison, programmed. But the sense I have gotten today is that the person that went into prison is the person that sits in front of you. Where have you heard that anything that happened to her that might have been mitigating was addressed to the extent that the public is no longer at risk? Any community that has this individual return to it is at risk. This is a direct risk. This isn't like a, a drug person who you could almost anticipate a collateral uh, consequence of violence. This person inflicts violence. And when they talk about the inequity that is associated with what her son received, I would submit that the influence of a mother to obtain her goals of revenge, financial stability, a house, was substantial enough that in fact her finger was on that trigger. Did you hear anything about her son today? The remorse in the sense that his life is over. <coughs> now he's in prison and ought to be, but in a sense he's a victim too. Another life lost in, association, in addition to Mr. Miller. When we talked about who is here, I do uh, ask that, the, uh, that this board give consideration to the daughter of Mr. Miller, who would like to speak, who I think will tell you that she saw her father her mother. You've seen their letters. I know you've read them. I don't want to uh, reemphasize them. I think she can speak for herself about what that loss has meant to her, in particular, at a time when you say, I would like to have had my father walk down the aisle with me. But I am deprived of that privilege and, and that dream, so to speak, that she had held for so long. This marriage that has been referred to, this third marriage, I believe, was from <coughs> 1992 to 1994, <coughs> fairly brief duration. A divorce was filed. People are away from each other, and they come back together, and this consequence flows from it. Chief Justice Douglas, I, I would ask you not to lose your concern for what was described as a harebrained idea, substantially more than that. Documents provided you tell you that that harebrained idea went so far as to say, let's shoot the guards on the tower and we'll get out. The person who she was communicating with was the same person she ran to Utah with after the jury was deliberating, but before they returned a verdict. She was returned to our jurisdiction, not by her, real, her own volition. I guess you could say it was, but really it involved trickery to get her back. I'm not sure the extent of it. But we, she came back. She was with that individual. That is the individual where letters were found from her, where the gun was found. Now, did, was it actualized? Did they act it out? No. That discussion should chill you to the bone. Let's kill a couple of guards and we'll get out, but let's make it a little better. You know what part of the plan was? When I get out with my abusive cellmate, we'll kill her. Then there won't be any witnesses. I would submit that what was established at trial is that this inmate, this, this person, was the moving party. She was the mastermind, so to speak. The prosecutor in his case, David Clifton, who I don't think is subject to exaggeration too much, says, most cold-blooded person I've met, I say that very often, he's done many, many murder cases. This case sets 
aside from those in the, in the sense that she, to obtain her goals, destroyed her son's life too. What would she not do? And what has been fixed since she's been incarcerated that would make you comfortable placing her in any community? Eventually settled. The <coughs> there were other plans. Why don't we electrocute him? Why don't we set a bomb? There was an alibi planned. She was going to be at the bar, going to take a cab. That's her alibi. No alibi for him, just for her. Didn't fly, jury didn't buy it. She's involved completely in the murder. They saw it. They convicted of aiding and abetting with the use of a deadly weapon. I've talked a little bit about the impact. Mr. Miller is gone. His daughter sits in the um, audience. Her son is, has effectively uh, had a life that has been ended for her. Her daughter, who is in uh, the, the audience, who has no father, said something that I, I think is of worth. There was other damage. Mr. Miller had a daughter, I mean, I'm sorry, had a sibling who died in an auto wreck. The mother of Mr. Miller gave up after this murder. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say he, she died of a broken heart. She gave up. Two children gone. But let's give her mercy. I'll just conclude before the family speaks. She is the same person. She is selfish. She is vicious. She is violent. She may be a little older, but guess what? She doesn't have uh, the ability maybe to do some things, but she influences others, and she can still do that. I don't care how old she is. She didn't pull the trigger, but her hand was on the shoulder of the person who did. She wasn't going to shoot the guards, but she was going to provide the person who would. And then they were going to dangerous person. She wants a huge benefit from this board today. She wants you to grant her request. And ask yourself, should you? On you that says, I deserve it. Remorse for her son. Admissions that she was involved. That she did these things. I didn't hear any of that. Those are the foundations to beginning to deserve some consideration, and they didn't occur here. This is alone, that you serve it, and that uh, after you're done with any questions of me, that you allow the family to speak. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Helzer. I, I don't have a specific question in this case, but um, it would be helpful to me in the future if you provide something in writing because there was no presentation in the packet from the Washoe County District Attorney's Office, which um, gave me the impression that you were not in opposition. And, uh, Your Honor, um, and I, Governor Sandoval, mm -hmm. I think uh, receiving that request from you will be honored. All right. I will do that. Thank you. Any other board members have questions for Mr. Helzer? Thank you, Mr. Helzer. Good morning, ma'am. If you'd please state your name and spell it for the record. Tammy Davis, T-A-M-M-I 
D-A-B-I-S. D-A-B-I-S. My name's Tammy Davis. Michael Miller was my dad. Honestly, I'm initially surprised to be here today. It's hard for me to understand how this option is at all possible for somebody who set murder in motion. She planned this, I don't know how many months, but months. She considered a number of different ways, as you already heard, and she even talked her own son into doing this for her. She planned an escape attempt that included more people being killed if necessary. And through all of this, she has never taken any responsibility for her actions or shown any remorse to any of the family. This month, I had my 18th birthday. I'm sorry. my 18th Father's Day without my father. And I've had so many other special days in my life, but they were always overshadowed by this and by him not being with me. And I will never get back any of those things or him. And it is something I have thought about every day since November 2nd of 1993. I don't believe 17 years is anywhere near long enough for all the hurt and action that she has caused my entire family and myself. And I know that life is not always fair, but I believe that commuting Phyllis's sentence is beyond fair. And if doing the right thing matters, the right thing is tonight, is to tonight this request. I also wanted to say after hearing previous statements, I only had my dad for 28 years, but I never saw him being violent. He was never abusive to myself or to my mother when they were married. I was also close with his second wife. She was at the trials which obviously they were divorced by then. She never has said anything about him being abusive ever to her. That just wasn't my dad. That was not him at all. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Davis. Good morning. Good morning, ma'am. I'm Earlene Miller Delora. That's E A R L E N E Miller, M I L L E R D E capital L A U R A. 
I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak. <clears throat> I'm Tammy Davis's mother, and this whole situation has caused unbelievable pain in our family. Michael and I were married from 1964 to 1972. We were very young. I was 18, he was 20. And obviously our marriage didn't last, but we did stay on good terms with one another. Um, I was very close to his family. In fact, to this day, his father, who turned 91 this year, lives with me because there is no family. That's to my benefit because he's a great guy, but it's not how it was supposed to be. And he tells me all the time how grateful he is to be with me and to see his granddaughter on a regular basis because she lives nearby. But Michael was supposed to be the one. He was supposed to be the one to take care of his dad. And he's gone. And in just a short matter of time, Michael's mother gave up. When she went into the hospital, she was, she and, and Cy, Michael's father, were in Aspen, Colorado, doing a job. And I got a call at my work that Estelle had gotten very ill and was in the hospital. So I immediately dropped everything and ran to Aspen, Colorado. I got there to find out that she was in the hospital and it was a heart problem. She had had heart bypass probably 10 years prior to that. She couldn't fly. They wouldn't let her come home in the motor home, which is how she got there. So they did finally allow me to drive her to um, Grand Junction, where we did catch a plane, providing that I promised to take her directly to the hospital as soon as we landed in Phoenix, which I did. Well, I made one little stop. She wanted tacos, and so I took her to my favorite tacos place, and we got a taco. She never came out of the hospital. And prior to the second surgery, she said, well, they tell me that I could live, and they tell me I could die. Who cares? We all assured her that we did. I can't imagine losing both of my children. I just can't imagine it. And that's what happened to her. This woman, Phyllis Miller, and I think it's ironic that she carries the name Miller for the rest of her life, actually. She took away the last child of this couple. To speak to the man that Michael Miller was, I can tell you that during the entire time of our marriage, there was no violence whatsoever. In fact, I was the major fighter, because I'm like this. And he <laughs> would walk away. He would leave. He wasn't a fighter. Um, the man that raised him, I have never seen raise his voice even in anger. The mother that raised him, I have never seen behave in any violent manner. That might have come from, if it even was possible, I can't imagine. Michael stayed friendly with me. In fact, the two years prior to his death, prior to his meeting Phyllis Miller, he spent his Thanksgivings and his Christmases of two years with me, with his family, in my home. Never, ever did we see any of the behaviors that Phyllis has presented to you. I don't know where that may have come from. I have no idea. 
I know that he was an honorable man. He paid his child support. He was there anytime Tammy needed him. I can't say anything more really about him. He was an average Joe, an average guy. I'm an average woman and we don't live our lives that way. This was the most incredible thing I have ever had to experience in my life. My father died exactly one week prior to Michael's death. And because of that, and because of the small inheritance that I got from my father, after Estelle Miller died, I was able to build an apartment onto the back of my house, and that's where Cy lives today. He would be very happy if only he had his son. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you, Mr. Laura. You're welcome. Anyone else present who would like to speak on this matter? Comments from board members? Governor, I'll make a motion to deny. I'll second. So, motion by Justice Paragary to deny the application of Ms. Miller, second by Justice Seda. Are there any questions or discussion on the motion? Hearing none, will the secretary please call the roll? Justice Paragary? Yes. Justice Hardesty? Yes. Justice Pickering? Yes. Justice Gibbons? Yes. Justice Seda? Yes. Justice Cherry? Yes. Chief Justice Douglas? Yes. Attorney General Masto? Yes. Governor Sandoval? Yes. Motion passes to deny. is item D, Ruben Camacho, inmate number 72934. Ms. Malone, do you wish to make a presentation? Thank you, uh, members of the board. Uh, I'm back representing uh, Noe Prado. Uh, Ruben Camacho is a name that Mr. Prado bought off the street from someone when he came to this country in order to have some kind of identification. It has stuck with him ever since, including throughout his incarceration, but he is in fact Noe Prado. He is serving his sentence uh, for trafficking, category A felony, 120 to 300 months, 10 to 25 years. Prado is 
in this country illegally and has an ice hold on him. At this point, he is asking the board for either a commutation of his sentence and a release to the federal authorities or an immediate parole eligibility and release to the federal authorities. Either way, he gets released to the feds. He has now served nine years in prison. Um, at his first parole, he's serving a consecutive sentence. And so his first parole to the street eligibility comes up in October of 2013. And I want to, right off the front, Mr. Prado, or Mr. Camacho, fully deserved prison when he was arrested and came into this system. He was out selling drugs in our community. There's no question about that. No one's going to make any excuses about that. Um, he was given consecutive, concurrent and consecutive sentences. He's served three out of those and is serving the last one now. But I believe one of the reasons, uh, the primary reason he has been selected for consideration uh, is his substantial rehabilitation while in prison um, and his maintenance of good ties to his family while he's been incarcerated. He has two little girls who live in Southern California with their mother. He maintains good contact with them, good relationship with her even though she has since remarried, a good relationship with her mother, his girl's grandmother. And he has taken it upon himself while in prison to learn what he can and do what he can for himself. He has learned English. He has an interpreter here, but I'm quite confident that he's understanding everything and he speaks very fluent English. He's just extremely nervous right now, understandably. He's gotten his GED in English. He's taken the reading, writing, math classes. He's recently, just within the past few months, passed the Nevada State High School proficiency reading exam in anticipation of trying to work towards a, a diploma. He hasn't been able to do that yet. But this is all in his second language. And he has done this all while in prison. He has worked consistently. He's done auto body work, which is skilled work. And he can do that again if he is released. Uh, he has addressed what he did feel was a problem, gambling problem, which was part of, you know, some of the underlying issues that encouraged him to do what he was doing. Um, at this point, what he is hoping for and what he is asking this board for is the ability actually just ultimately to go home to Mexico, to his mother, to his two brothers, uh, to live there doing what he is able to do with his mechanical and work skills and also with his English skills uh, to be able to maybe work 
um, in that in some field in which that's useful because he does speak very good English at this point. Reads, writes. Um, because his daughters are U.S. citizens, they are able to tr travel freely back and forth between this country and Mexico. They do go down now and visit their relatives there. Uh, they come back. Um, they are getting a solid education, good support, plenty of family. Um, but his father did die while he's been, incar been incarcerated. He never saw his father again. His mother is getting older. She's needing more help. Um, and he has, honestly, no wish to be back in the United States. Uh, I would remind um, the board that, again, any release that he were to obtain were he to get parole eligibility would be directly to uh, his ice hold and to the federal authorities. Um, and I know that uh, Mr. Helzer has expressed concern about making sure that there is some kind of tail on people. I am to, you know, to come back. If there were any issue about coming back into this country, he would have to deal with the federal authorities. And certainly he would understandably have to finish out the rest of his sentence were he not to obey all laws and violate his parole at some, in some way. Um, I'm not sure if he um, wants to speak. He's, he was very um, concerned about that. Uh, and I know he would like to express his remorse uh, for what he has done and for what he has caused to, to the community. Um, with his conduct, but I'm not sure how he feels. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank all of you for the simple uh, chance of being here. Uh, I would like to offer my apologies to the entire country, especially the state of Nevada, for all of the harm that I have caused. Les pido perdón desde el fondo I de mi corazón. ask you for forgiveness from the bottom of my heart. Les pido que por favor I ask you to please que me dejen ir a ver to a allow me to go see my family. Les prometo que no vuelvo I promise jamás. you that I will never come back y estar and, recto. and I'll live a straight life. Gracias. Thank you. Questions from board members? Governor Sandoval, I only have a question for the department. Uh, in light of this other issue as to his real name, uh, indicating the name is Prado, has the department attempted to, if the department was aware, to verify who in fact he is? May I, Justice Douglas? Why don't we wait to hear from uh, Director Cox and then from you, Ms. Uh, pardon, board members, uh, Greg Cox again. Uh, we're aware of the alias. Um, it is in his records. As we always do, we have to go by the name that's on the judgment of conviction. Just to flesh out part of your question, Justice Douglas, um, I know there are some mentions of some prior arrests under the name Ruben Camacho. Those are Mr. Camacho, uh, not Mr. Prado. 
Well, that would beg my question, which is, is there a criminal history for Mr. Prada? And I guess that's what Justice Douglas was asking as well. Um, I have no specific information about that except for what Mr. Prado says, which is no. No. He does not have a prior criminal history. This was substantial. And Governor, if I may follow up, because this was the same question that I had, was on the pre-sentence investigation, it knows his place of birth was Fullerton, California. But if, I'm assuming what you're saying is that the stolen identity also had that as the place of birth, and that is not his accurate place Correct. of birth. Correct. That had me confused for quite a while, too. But he has explained that all of this information goes to this Camacho person. I don't know, for example, if at the time of sentencing any investigation was done with respect to Noe Prado specifically or not. I mean, it seems that the name relied on was Ruben Camacho. Justice Gibbons. Thank you. Ms. Malone, I noticed Justice Hardesty was the district judge on the case. Did Mr. Prado tell him or anybody his real name at all prior to sentencing? I'm not sure. Let me, if I may just. The reason I ask is the judges, district judges, must rely on this pre-sentence investigation report. That's critical to their analysis. And if it's not even the right person, it really puts the district court in a bind to properly analyze the case to determine what that person's background is. It looks like there's no mention of the name Noe Prado in the pre-sentence report. But I do note that assuming he was proceeding under Mr. Camacho's name, he went along with getting credit for the prior felony arrests on burglary, assault on the person, false identification to a peace officer, and failures to appear. So. Well, I don't have a vivid memory. I do remember Mr. Camacho very well. And I also remember, and I wouldn't want to harm his chances here in front of the board, but I can't remember if you, Mr. Camacho, are the one, or Mr. Prado. But I thought you were the one that came in and pled to a third time DUI offense with the opportunity to take advantage of a 36, excuse me, a 12 to 36 month sentence. And then we discovered we had the wrong person. We had to start over again. Now, I don't know if you remember that incident or not. But my concern is this, and I don't want that issue to be held against you. I have been an active supporter of the program that we would send people back to their country of origin in these kinds of cases. But the amount of drugs that were involved in this particular case were shocking. And as you will acknowledge, I gave you a considerable break and rejected the recommendation of the Division of Parole and Probation for three consecutive sentences and ran the first two concurrent. And for myself, that's as far as a break as I'm prepared to give. You are eligible in 2013, and I'll be voting no. Thank you, Justice Hardesty. Well, I guess I'm compelled to ask the obvious question. 
Are you the individual that Judge Hardesty then believed was in his court on a different matter under what you now claim to be your real name? I didn't understand that question. Do you recall appearing in front of Judge Hardesty when he was a district judge? On a DUI three. No. No. Not for alcohol. For drugs. For drugs. Alcohol. 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 No. For alcohol. Did you say not for alcohol? No alcohol. No alcohol. For drugs. For drugs. Thank you. Mr. Cox, a question for you. How long would it take to run a criminal history on the name Prado? Honorable pardon, board members. If PMP was willing to call it in, I've checked the pre-sentence investigation. He does have two FBI numbers also. But we could go back with his FBI, with his fingerprints, and they could research any criminal activity he might have had. And it may not be necessary given the decision of this board. I know that Justice Hardesty has indicated his feelings on this, but I don't know if we need to table this if it is the will of this board not to consider this application. I actually make a motion to deny. I think 700 grams is significant. We have a motion to deny by Justice Paragary, a second by Chief Justice Douglas. Before I accept the motion, I want to see if there's anybody else who wanted to speak on behalf of this matter. Is there anyone present? Director Cox. Again, pardon the board members. ICE does recognize him as Noe Prado Esquivel, the DOB. That's in our information system. That's who they recognize him as. Thank you, Director Cox. We do have a motion and a second. Are there any questions or is there any discussion on the motion? Hearing none, will the Secretary please call the roll? Justice Paragary? Yes. Justice Hardesty? Yes. Justice Pickering? Yes. Justice Gibbons? Yes. Justice Seda? Yes. Justice Cherry? Yes. Chief Justice Douglas? Yes. Attorney General Masto? Yes. Governor Sandoval? Yes. Motion passes. Two deny. Before we take the next applicant, is it the will of the board to continue? Then we'll take the next. Next item on the agenda is the application of Mark McKinney, number 16966. Mr. Cornell, are you here on behalf of Mr. McKinney? I am. Please proceed. Thank you. I can't let the moment pass without saying it's nice to see everybody here. 
My name is Richard Cornell. I represent Mr. Cornell, and I apologize for interrupting you, but if it's a hardship for Mr. McKinney to stand, tell him to he's feel free oh, to sit. It, it is. Thank you very much. Uh, first, again, I want to introduce the people who are here in support of Mr. McKinney. Uh, we have Karen DeMarco, who is Mr. McKinney's wife. We have Matt Fugate, who is his stepson. We have Carolyn Burgess, who is his mother-in-law. And we have John Whitaker, uh, who works for Mary Lou Wilson Esquire as his friend. Um, Ms. DeMarco testified before the board in 2008, and she would say nothing really substantively different. So I'm not going to call on her and the others, but I do want to make sure that the board has read Dr. Gedney's letter of June 23, 2011. I received this obviously late. Uh, it's my understanding that it's been submitted to everybody in their package. I don't know if everybody's had a chance to read it or not. Excuse uh, me for a moment, Mr. Cornell. Do all members of the board have this letter dated May 16, 2011, uh, from the State of Nevada Department of Correction? Yes. Okay. Please proceed, Mr. Cornell. Thank you. Um, you all have it. Uh, I won't read it word for word. I'm assuming uh, that the board has reviewed it, but to highlight it, since Mr. McKinney saw you last in 2008, uh, he's had a major stroke. Uh, he had had a history of heart attacks before that. Uh, he was put on an anticoagulation drug uh, that worked for a while, and then in May of 11, uh, uh, he became extremely sick, uh, had a 50-pound weight loss, uh, has Crohn's disease. He was admitted to Carson Tahoe. Dr. Gedney references it as one of the worst cases of pancolitis secondary to Crohn's. Had a lengthy stay in the hospital. Uh, he was returned to regional medical facility. He's cleared the infection. He's extremely weak, as I think you can <coughs> Had a total of 50-pound weight loss from his standard weight. Um, he's regained some strength. He's placed on the yard in a wheelchair because he felt that he would get more emotional support by his friends who could give him extra food. And Dr. Gedney states what, uh, points that I think are very significant for the board's consideration. In light of the patient's underlying significant vascular, including heart attacks and strokes, and his current problem with Crohn's disease, I feel that this patient is at high risk for significant morbidity and early mortality. I also feel that from a medical standpoint, he'll be a potentially high medical liability in regards to the cost to the Nevada Department of Corrections as well. This result strikes me as dovetailing with what I feel is the most significant thing in your package otherwise, which is the report from the prison psychologist, Dr. Rebecca Loftus. Now, in 2008, the prison psychologists weren't quite so kind, if you will, to Mr. McKinney, yet he took four of the seven votes. Uh, for the relief he saw. Dr. Loftus, on the other hand, now having seen Mr. McKinney, says that the likelihood of Mr. McKinney committing another similar offense is not great. I have to say, from my layman's point of view, I fully concur. This man is 55 years old. You see him, he looks about 75. When I saw him in June of this year after getting retained, I was shocked. I walked right past him. He's the only inmate in the 
visiting room. I didn't even recognize him. He looked that different. Um, I cannot imagine a man in this condition, if released, going out and robbing anybody. I, I just can't visualize it. But besides that, I, 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 looking at his condition and thinking about why he's in prison for so long, which is essentially uh, one robbery of one bar with six patrons, where he has been in now for 285 months by my calculation, or 23 years and nine months, I said, what would happen in federal court if this case could be heard in federal court? What would the sentencing guidelines, the United States sentencing guidelines say under robbery? And I looked them up. Uh, the, the appropriate guideline is 2B3.1, or robbery. It starts off at a base level of 20. They, the uh, Guidelines Commission would up at five levels for branding or possessing a firearm. That's what his co-defendant did. And because he's an aider and a better, he's liable for that. Um, but there are no other adjustments within the guideline. There was no financial institution involved. Uh, there was no bodily injury to anybody. There was no escape. There was no carjacking. There was no theft of guns and the loss in this case was less than $10,000. With his criminal history, I think fairly he'd be at category four. So what a federal judge looking at this case would be faced is, is a guideline calculation at offense level 25, history four, which would be an 84 to 105 month sentence. I think a reasonable federal judge would be at the high end of that because of the number of victims, quite frankly, but then there would be several downward departures to consider. One would be minor participant. Mr. McKinney was not the gun wielder, he was the wheelman. His testimony was that he was a wheelman forced to do what he did by Mr. Gaines. The jury rejected his testimony and found him guilty, fair enough. But he would be a minor participant, I think, under any fair reading of the facts. And at trial, he testified, and although the jury rejected his testimony as to him, they accepted it as to Mr. Gaines. And possibly a, a clever federal defense lawyer could argue some type of downward departure for, for uh, a substantial assistance of the government in, in convicting Mr. Gaines. That might not fly, but it might. Depends on the judge, really. But Realistically, what you're seeing is a case that is somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 100 months in the federal system. He, as I said, has served 285 months at this point. Now, one other, before we leave the subject of Mr. Gaines, one of the major driving points in his favor in 2008 was the fact that this board gave favor to Mr. Gaines, which enabled him to see the parole board quite a bit earlier. And the argument was, well, if Mr. Gaines gets that kind of relief, why not Mr. McKinney? As has been shown in the package, Mr. Gaines blew it. He, he was granted grace and he blew it. I mentioned that to Mr. McKinney. He did not know that. He said, you know, if the parole board could have brought me in to testify before them at his eligibility hearing, I would have told him why you should never give the, let this guy out. The point being, do not judge Mr. McKinney by what Mr. Gaines has done. Mr. Gaines blew it. I really honestly do not believe that Mr. McKinney would, if granted grace by this board. 
What has changed since October of 2008? His health, that's the main thing. Uh, as I said, this case is not at the point of compassionate release, but I gotta say, it's not terribly far from that. Uh, I mean, I think without putting those words in Dr. Gedney's mouth, that's kind of what she's implying, early morbidity, early mortality. Uh, he has had uh, one minor write-up, as, as noted in the uh, report, uh, after this time, his behavior is conformed with what the Department of Corrections expects out of inmates, essentially. Uh, his wife, Karen, is a home health care nurse, and, and quite honestly, the biggest argument that I've seen against Mr. McKinney is, well, he hasn't programmed. If he were 20 years younger, that would be a real tough hurdle for me. Uh, but here we are, after 23 years and nine months, basically this guy wants to go home to his wife so she can either nurse him back to health or he can die at home. When I saw Mr. McKinney in the middle of June, the last thing he said to me with tears in his eyes was, please, Rick, do what you can. Don't let me die here. And that's the relief that we're seeking. Please, don't let him die in the prison. You know, quite frankly, I think this is a case that would be appropriate to run everything concurrent and let him out. If the board felt otherwise, then the relief of 2008, I think, would be the appropriate relief. Let everything but one sentence run concurrently so he can see the parole board. But frankly, for this individual, I'm not sure how meaningful a parole would be. Uh, quite frankly, it would be a short parole in his health condition. I can't imagine a parole officer saying to him, get out there and get a job or we're going to send you back on a revocation. It just wouldn't seem humane to me, quite frankly. Um, so quite, again, I think that this is a case that's appropriate for running all the sentences concurrently and, and giving him a sentence of time served so he can basically go home. In other words, take the 2008 relief that four out of seven members, including then-Governor Gibbons, voted for and make it retroactive since he has since paroled off that uh, sentence that would have taken him home had relief been granted in 08. And, and I think that would be more than appropriate for Mr. McKinney. Otherwise, uh, having them all run concurrent but one is an option on the table. Uh, I don't... Ms. DeMarco could testify for you again if necessary. Uh, I don't know that it is. Everything that she said to you in 2008, she'd say today. Uh, I don't know that you need any further information, really, but uh, stand open for questions if you do. Thank you, Mr. Cornell. My question is, you've used the uh, <coughs> analogy of the federal system. Is, is the purpose of that is just to show the difference in the sentencing structure between the state and the federal system and that had he been in the federal system, he would have um, been released by now? Certainly. I mean, the, the, the point is not to say, well, we must, the, we must follow the federal system. Of course not. The point is, as a matter of comparison, it's exactly as you say. Uh, had this been a robbery that was prosecutable federally, he would have been home years ago. And he still would have. He likely would have gotten a consecutive use of a deadly weapon. He, well, now, that's an interesting legal issue, uh, Governor Sandoval, because with the five-level adjustment for brandishing a weapon, could they double count it? 
I don't know. I mean, it would be an issue. But even if they could, with that extra 60 months, he would have been home. Agreed. And I know that temporarily it's a distinction without a difference because of the time he has served in the state system. Correct. Any other questions for Mr. Cornell from board members? Okay, did, did somebody want to speak in, in support of this? I mean, you indicated that you probably nothing else would have been offered different from than what you've provided, Mr. Cornell. Um, no. Uh, you, you would hear the family saying that, that the family is 100% behind Mr. McKinney, and yes, as you would hear them say, as I said, Ms. McKinney is a home health care nurse, and if he's granted release and he can come home, her job is to take care of him, and his job is to get well, if he can. I mean, that's what they would tell you. Thank you, Mr. Cornell. Is there anybody present who wanted to speak in opposition to the application? Board members, any comments or is there a motion? Governor, could I ask a question of Mr. Cox? Yes. Justice Mr. Cox, on, on the, um, I know the, you, you've made no recommendation on this particular application. I'm just curious why. And my second question is, I, I know we've been told in past pardons board that it costs something like around 20000 a year to house an inmate. Uh, with somebody like with all these medications that Mr. McKinney's taking, just out of curiosity, how, how much more does that drive up the cost to the uh, Department of Corrections to house uh, people with these type of medical problems? To the board, uh, Greg Cox, sir. Uh, on average, it's $23,800 to incarcerate someone in our state. Um, it is true that the medical cost of certain individuals, inmates, does, does increase that cost. Um, specifically concerning Mr. McKinney, uh, the couple, there were a couple issues uh, that I thought were relevant to his past criminal history. The fact that he chose not to program during his, during his entire incarceration. Okay. Thank you. And his escape history from Southern Nevada Correctional Center. And so your recommendation is actually that no action be taken? Correct. Okay. And if I may, Governor, I'd simply point out that all of that was true in 2008, uh, yet we came that close. Uh, I mean, basically what we're seeking is to have you take the position of Governor Gibbon and uh, the, three the three justices who voted for Mr. McKinney last time to hold their votes and hopefully one of the remaining to vote for him. That's, that's what we're seeking. Governor, may I ask? This is Justice Cherry. I'll make a motion that uh, we grant the uh, application. Excuse me, Justice Cherry. Before you made that motion, Justice Perigary had a question. Justice Perigary? I did. Uh, during the last hearing, uh, one of my questions was uh, the pro programming aspect. I made a comment as to the uh, criminal history, and the only time he wasn't committing crimes was when he was in prison. Uh, and then I had a concern that he had been in prison a significant period of time with no programming, and it doesn't appear there's been any programming since we saw him in 2008. Uh, I agree, Justice Perigary, and, and again, if we could turn the clock back in time to 10 years ago, uh, that would be a major problem. I, I just can't emphasize enough the rhetorical question. At this point, you see this man, what programming can he do realistically? I know this from, from my experience with other uh, inmates I've represented. If they are an RMF, uh, 
there is no programming. But knowing that it was a concern in 2008, you would think that there would be some effort uh, in that regard if you're going to ask to be placed before this board again. Well, we did have the heart attack pretty shortly after that hearing. Um, three months. Three months. And in fact, uh, my understanding is, is that there was a fair amount of reporting, a fair amount of lag time between the heart attack and the reporting because Mr. McKinney was trying to tough it out and, and stay out of RMF if he could. Uh, and, but, but he was in a significantly debilitated state for that period of time. That I know. That I can accurately represent to the board. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Justice Cherry, do you w still wish to make your motion? Yes, I would still make that motion. And I did uh, vote in favor of him the last time. And I, I don't recognize him either this time. I think his health is terribly deteriorated. Justice Cherry, will you specify the nature of your motion? Because uh, Mr. <laughs> Couple scenarios. What uh, uh, to turn to Mr. Cornell? First of all, I congratulate you for using the sentencing guidelines. I've never seen anybody use sentencing guidelines favorable to anybody. So congratulations. But would you say what uh, your your request is? My, my, my primary request would be to have all the sentences run concurrent, which would essentially mean time served. If that's voted down, my secondary request would be to have all but one run concurrent, so that there is. Uh, one with a parole tail, uh, which would be. A I would. Uh, I would adopt the second one. I like the idea of maybe a parole tail, even though I think he's harmless. Probably not. That would be my motion. Okay, Mr. Cornell, for my benefit, will you state again what option two was? Uh, option two was to have all of the sentences run, all of the remaining sentences run concurrently to each other, except and concurrently to the existing sentence, save and except one or the last sentence and what would be the consequence of that in terms of the action if the board were to favorably approve that um, i would have to defer to director cox and ms bisbee for that answer but i think uh because it's under the old statute uh he would get a parole eligibility hearing reasonably quickly um, in other words, it's prior to the 1995 amendments to the statute. Um, so the, the, the credits, I think, would, would come off the front end, and uh, he would probably, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll, again, I'm going to defer to I'm going to defer to, to Ms. Bisbee yeah. because I, I would like to understand exactly right. what the nature of the motion is. Governor, if, if I may, um, if you look at uh, section one of your packet, page one, that is the sentence structure provided by Department of Corrections. He is currently active on sentence number seven, for which he will become eligible for parole August 2012. Now, uh, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but the request is to run sentences eight, nine, ten, 11, 12, and 13 concurrent with that sentence, making them all eligible for parole August 2012, but there still be a consecutive sentence, and that would be number 14. So if he were to be paroled in August 2012, he would be paroled to his, his last consecutive, which is the UDW sentence number 14, with a minimum of three years. 
then, then I misspoke. Thank you, uh, Mr. Campoletti. Uh, my, my intent in seeking relief is to have, I guess you could say, all the sentences run concurrent with the idea that uh, his parole hearing in August of 12 would be a parole to the streets. Um, I mean, my, my primary one was basically time served, and I thought that running them all concurrent would, would, would achieve that, but uh, I stand corrected. And I want to be clear on that. So it is not an option to run sentence or 8 through 14 concurrent to number 7, which would make him eligible for all of these for parole on August 29, 2012. And uh, Governor, if I may, um, as restated uh, by Mr. Cornell, that the option would be to run all remaining sentences concurrent to the current active. So 14, sentence 14 would be included. So he would be parole eligible to the street August 2012. And what would, excuse me, Governor? Justice Hardesty. Yes, and uh, how many credits does he have on the high end? So what's the uh, tail? Because that sentence that he's, if he got parole, he'd still have to go to 2018 less credits, right? That's. September 11th, right? He's serving seven. He's going to get parole eligibility in August of 2012. He still has to, so the parole eligibility, if he got parole, he has to finish serving that sentence. That's correct, Justice Hardesty. That's take him to September of 2018. That's correct. So, the, so if, he, if we run them all concurrent, this man's going to be in prison till August 12. If he gets parole, he's going to be under, under a tail till 2018. Justice Hardesty, that is correct. I would suggest I'm satisfied with that as my motion, if that's applicable. And Justice Cherry, to make sure, I'm going to restate it to make sure that I have it right. Your motion would be to approve the application, which would entail 8 through 14 to run concurrent with number 7, and that Mr. McKinney would be eligible for a parole hearing on August 29, 2012, and that he would have a tail that if, if he were favorably granted parole at that time, he would have a tail until September 11th of 2018. Sounds good to me, Governor. Okay, that, That'd be my motion. Okay, that's the motion. Is there a second? I'll second. We have a second from Justice Seda. Are there any questions or discussion on the motion? Hearing none, will the secretary please call the roll? Justice Paragary? Yes. Justice Hardesty? Yes. Justice Pickering? Yes. Justice Gibbons? Yes. Justice Seda? Yes. Justice Cherry? Yes. Chief Justice Douglas? I will vote no. Um, based upon the prior that uh, there was no programming during the period of time he was healthy in prison, so I cannot grant grace. Attorney General Masto? Yes. Governor Sandoval? Yes. Motion passes. Thank you, Mr. Thank you very much, Governor.
Is the will of the board to continue with the next applicant, or do you wish to take a look? Uh, let's take a 10-minute break until 12.30, and then we will continue at that time. Thank you. Board is in recess.
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.